Welcome to Very British Futures, the podcast that's taking a look back at some of the most interesting science fiction television produced in the United Kingdom. I'm Gareth Preston. We're staying in the 80s today, 1987 to be precise, where Chris Boucher, a writer already known to fans of Doctor Who and Blake Seven, successfully pitched a series set in the near future, where humanity has now made the inner solar system the new frontier. But new opportunities for science and industry also mean fresh ways to commit crimes. Today, we're talking about Star Cops. But before we go on, a couple of listeners have been in touch with additional information for previous episodes. My friend Martin Hearn told me that Star Maidens was definitely shown in the Granada ITV region because unlike myself, he had a clear memory of watching the show and recognising Gareth Thomas, who was by then more famous for Blake Seven. And DQ Test 2020 posted on the blog that the Tripods was co-produced with the Channel 7 network in Australia where it was aired as part of the children's weekend TV lineup. Channel 7 held back the first series in order to run both seasons back to back. Now, joining me, wearing natty blue jumpsuits and floating around in CSO, are three guests who all nominated this programme to discuss when I was first planning this series. Peter Graham, Kevin Hiley and Dr Rebecca Ray. Peter Green is a writer of science fiction and has lectured on science fiction at the University of South Wales's Science and Science Fiction degree course. Rebecca is a mental health mentor and a lecturer in psychology. Kevin is an experienced video editor and graphic designer, as well as a short film maker. Star Cops was broadcast on BBC Two between July and August 1987. It was, as I said, the brainchild of Chris Boucher, who originally pitched it to Radio 4 as a series. When that was turned down, he felt there was nothing to lose in retooling it as a TV show and was rewarded with a commission. Boucher initially wanted to write the whole season himself, but the pressures of time obliged him to bring in Philip Martin to write two and John Colley another three. Due to an electrician's strike at the BBC, the initial ten-episode run was cut to nine, losing one of Philip Martin's episodes, Death on the Moon. Christopher Baker and Graham Harper directed roughly half the season each. The producer was Evgeny Gridneff whose CV included Blot on the Landscape, as well as script editing experience on several BBC period dramas, including The House of Elliot. Series regulars included David Calder as Nathan Spring, Eric Ray Evans as David Farou, Linda Newton as Pal Kenzie, and Trevor Cooper as Colin Davis. Star Cops was released in three VHS volumes by BBC Video and the complete series was briefly available on DVD thanks to Network Video and can now be streamed on BritBox. In 2018, Big Finish launched an audio continuation featuring Calder, Cooper and Newton. So, Peter, would you like to describe the setup of Star Cops for people who don't know it? I'd be happy to, Gareth. The year is 2027, and mankind has started colonising and exploiting the solar system. But wherever there are people, there's crime. And where there's crime, you're going to need a police force. When British Police Chief Superintendent Nathan Spring reluctantly accepts the promotion to commander of the International Space Police Force, the ISPF, nicknamed the Star Cops, it soon becomes apparent he was correct to be reluctant. Not only does he have to turn the 20 part-time volunteers into a full-time professional police force, weeding out corrupt officers, recruiting new staff while expanding the authority of the force to all the human habitats, he also has to cope with the unforgiving hazards of space. As Spring says, you leave Earth and anything you forget to bring with you will kill you. Anything you do bring with you which doesn't work properly, 
will kill you. When in doubt, just assume everything will kill you. Yes, that's a setup. So a good place to start, I think, would be how did we all first uh, encounter Star Cops? Uh, would you like to uh, start, uh, Rebecca? Ah, well, I first encountered it when I met Kevin about uh, 2009, and he knew I was a sci-fi fan, and he asked me if I'd seen Star Cops, and I said, I've never even heard of it. And he's like, oh, I've got it on DVD, so he lent it to me, and I really loved it. And I've now seen it three times over. Plus, Kevin found out after lending it to me how much the DVD's going for, and he says he's never lending it out ever again. <laughs> quite horrif- we were both quite horrified at how much the DVD costs. It's like hundreds of pounds. It is quite uh, amazing how uh, how that has become so sought after. Hopefully, BritBox will bring that down and make it more affordable. Yeah. How about yourself, Kevin? Um, I did see at least one episode when it was first broadcast. Some of the, the space scenes from uh, Paranoid Games and Trivial Pursuits did burn themselves into my memory. But I don't recall watching much of it, though, uh, even if I saw any other episodes. Uh, at the time, I would have been just still too young to really get much from the show. I doubt I understood what was going on. I would have been, what, about eight at the time. So, yeah, it would be... <laughs> it probably wouldn't have appealed to me all that much. And yourself, Peter? Well, unfortunately, or fortunately, I was, or I am old enough to have uh, been able to watch the whole series and enjoyed it. I, anything science fiction at the time I was on the BBC or anywhere on television, I would uh, watch and I got hooked on Star Cop straight away. It just seemed like a winning formula to me because I loved um, detective series, police series, and I loved uh, science fiction, and it was just combining two of my favourite things. So uh, I watched the whole series. I was eagerly anticipating a, a sequel, which never came, and I've always been disappointed about that. Mm-hmm. It is just uh, watching it uh, recently. Yeah, like we've only just begun, and it's very nicely set up for a second season. We'll probably move on to pondering on what a second season would have been like uh, later on. Um, similar to you, Peter, I, I watched it uh, myself the first time round. I can remember it being previewed in Starburst magazine. And uh, the preview was actually a bit sniffy, if I remember, mm. written by uh, Paul Mount and sort of said, oh, it'll it'll just be around for a couple of seasons and then everyone will forget about it. Someone will champion it. I did enjoy it, but I can't remember being really sort of gripped by it. I think it's a show I've ex- I've appreciated more in the years later. Years later... I came across the free VHSs, well, at a second-hand bookstall, and it was re-watching it there, I thought, this is a, actually a lot better than I remembered. It, it probably requires a certain maturity to appreciate it, perhaps. Um, it's not the sort of science fiction a youngster might take too straight away because it hasn't got the usual whiz-bang, uh, ray guns, and potential yeah. alien attacks or, and things like this. It's, uh, it's a bit more sophisticated is and it's a bit more real um I, it was only predicted um what for a few de- you know relatively few decades into the future and when when things would naturally progress as people saw it with the space race of the time um which unfortunately never happened mm. but it was extrapolating that what sort of admin problems are you going to have what sort of criminal problems are you going to have as an experiment in thinking about it is a is a very clever idea. Yeah, but it's partly, as you say, the strengths are the sort you appreciate better on the repartee. The dialogue yeah. is excellent. Yeah. It's uh, it carries on. I mean, Chris Boucher has written all these splendidly bitey, witty exchanges between uh, Avon and Blake and the rest of the crew on that show, yeah. and his his yeah. Doctor Who stories also have. Pretty good. Not quite realistic dialogue sometimes, but very memorable kind of repartee between characters. Mm. And Star Cops carries that on. I was just going to say Nathan Spring has some brilliant lines like, uh, where's the exchange with the commander of the American space station? Uh, he says, uh, my country right or wrong? And, um, and the commander says, well, there, there are worse philosophies. And he says, yes, and most of them start with that. <laughs> so I, I think they were very, very, very clever lines there, especially with Nathan Spring. 
I was just saying I watched the Cult of Star Cops as well, and they were talking about the dialogue in that scene. It was really important for them to uh, have the characters be very a bit coarse in their language and stuff because they wanted it so grounded in reality. And saying this is how people would talk. Yeah, and in some ways, I think that quest for reality. I think people sometimes perhaps misunderstood it. One of the frequent criticisms, in fact, before I got to, what 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 do you think about uh, the look of Star Cops generally? The sort of the production style of it. Looking at it in different ways, if we're going from a, from a design perspective, the look of the show is actually, I think, really rather impressive. Mm. Uh, this is this is a show where they've they've really sat down and thought about how a show should look. You know, it, but set in the near future in a microgravity environment, and but of course you're then balancing that against an 80s uh, BBC show with a budget that's probably not much different to something like Juliet Bravo. You know, it's um, mm-hmm. there's, there's only so much you can get away with. There is, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously the, the model work in Star Cops is 35mm film, but uh, I'm just trying to make, is there any actual footage of actors that's, for, uh, that's shot on film? Uh, I don't uh, think any of the um, actors are shot on film. It's entirely video. Yeah. Yes, because uh, Boucher wanted all the Earth stuff done on film and the space stuff done on video, and Vegni, that guy, the producer, basically <laughs> vetoed that and said, no, it's all being done on video. Well, I do think there is that one sh- sequence in the uh, centrifuge, which they must have done at like an, an Air Force base or something. When Nathan's doing oh, his yeah. stats film, but that might be the only thing I can think of. I have a feeling you're right. Yeah, I think that could be there could be practical reasons why they can't get a video camera into there. The I know they went to a lot of trouble to get it right. They even had uh, an American astronaut whose name I can't remember. He's uh, a speak on Yeah, thank you, thank you. That's uh, that's going to be a big help. <laughs> <With my memory. laughs> um, he. Um, he was very impressed, and I, and I think it comes across that a lot of it was very good. Um, so the uh, impression is generally good. I think where it was let down a bit, they had a conflict with the style of the two directors. Christopher Baker and Graham Harper. They were, um, I think they had different approaches. One wanted it dark, another one wanted it super lit. And um, there was a bit of a conflict there, and a uh, discontinuity perhaps mm. although having said that i uh, it didn't didn't strike me as a particularly significant thing i mean i suppose if you look at each episode in its own context you just accept it the way it is but a consistent approach to that would have been good in terms mm. well i don't know if i don't know if anybody else has got an opinion on that on that in general or what they well, thought of the sets and things I agree with uh, with Peter on that, actually. If you watch them, it isn't that noticeable between episodes. I mean, you can tell a Graham Harper episode because he has a very uh, a very unique and idiosyncratic way at the beaver at the time of lighting things. He, he loves his purple light, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, so there's that. But, yeah, I don't I don't feel there's, like, a massive mis- mismatch between episodes. Mm. Um, and, you know, when it comes to it, it's... <laughs> I do wonder how they must have uh, felt when learn, uh, learning what they were going to have to do for this show. I mean, if you tell a director, I want to accurately portray life in space, and if they have a grasp of what that entails, you're going to see the colour drain from their faces. You're going to ask. You're going to need a floor full of atypical sets. You're going to need harnesses ready for actors. You're going to need to use chroma key everywhere. You're going to need a horde of floor assistants dangling weightless objects on fishing lines and what have you. And so it's, uh, mm. it, it, it must have been, you know, it, it, from what I remember, uh, I mean, Graham Harper's done sci-fi. He's mm. done two very good Doctor Who episodes of this, so he, he's got some growing, but he's probably still considered the whippersnapper. At this. Mm. He's still quite young in his career. Whereas I know Chris Baker's, you know, he's an old hand. He, 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 he's been a director a long time at this point. And, uh, but I don't think he's ever done any sci-fi. So mm, no. it might have been quite a steep learning curve getting getting through all the technicals for him. And it just happens that the first two episodes are probably two of the most technically complex. I mean, I, I, what makes it especially hard is that we're dealing with sci-fi in the near future 
in space, not in the distant future where artificial gravity has been invented. And mm. therefore, they're, they're trying to convey this sense of realism with floating aboutness, which never really quite comes off, but you forgive it, forgive them for it, because they're doing their best and they can't work miracles. So you just, it's that um, suspension of disbelief along with the suspension of actors, I suppose. But uh, you try. <laughs> they can't get absolutely perfectly right. And you have to, if you're going to buy into a series like this, you have to be forgiving of those mm. sorts of things. And the time constraints as well, because um, it comes up again and again when I've been reading up about or watching interviews and they're saying, they're doing the anti-gravity stuff, this, you know, harnesses and things just took up so, it took up so much time they were running they do. out. They do, they're awful. For, for taking up an entire yeah. uh, day. So they quickly had to establish, right, with the moving to moving base. Mm. Yeah, I, I definitely got that feeling that they had to get to the moon base and even there they weren't realistically uh, depicting the gravity on the moon base, but it could have sort of fall into the background while they got on with the story. I mean, it's mm. not something you want to get too hung up on, really, if you're trying to convey an interesting story. With the moon base especially, I mean, Portraying one-sixth gravity is actually harder than portraying microgravity because yeah. normal human locomotion just doesn't work on the moon. So everyone will be doing these sort of lolloping hops around to, to, mm. to get around the base. And, and even if you did portray that accurately, no one watching would take it seriously. They'd laugh at it. Mm. Yes. So yeah. I think they did exactly the right thing on the moon and just just yeah. not address it. More than the visuals, uh, really, my, my worst complaint is the, the poor sound mix. I mean, for reasons I don't understand, you've got issues with obtrusive set noise still on there, you've got incidental music that's too loud, mm. and then mm. you've got these sequences where you've got multiple strings of dialogue that are being spoken on top of one another. And yes. Well, the net result is you you can't make out what either conversation's about. Yeah. Yeah. It's particularly bad when they had news broadcasts going in the background yeah. and you can hardly hear what the actors are saying yeah that's the problem because i don't think i'd want to show the first one or two episodes to someone because i'd be worried about that putting because i think that's kind of off-putting and it does make it a bit hard going at first but then mm. they kind of phase that out after a while and it just becomes normal again i think they were doing that it also to make comes across as a bit I was just going to say it comes across as a bit amateurish really somehow that they're not yes. doing their job right somehow I mean, I'm assuming it's in a, it, it, hearing the sort of multiple levels of dialogue. I think I think it's a that maybe they're trying to capture the feeling of when you were listening to comms chatter in actual contemporary space missions, mm. when it's like lots of people talking over each other and it's like a bit of a cacophony. But if it was the reason, it's interesting, but it it just does not. Work. I guess the equivalent of that would be if you're filming. It, uh, I don't know, some drama or something, and there's a scene in a taxi and all you can hear is the, uh, what is it, the CB radio thing, mm. chattering away constantly. I think that drives me nuts. Yeah. It doesn't explain the uh, the poor overlay of incidental music, though. That's, no. that's not something I expect from the BBC of, uh, mm. of that time at all. No, that, that is a bit uh, peculiar, and there's no, like you say, there's no clear reason why that happens. I think I'm just going to have to assume they were rushed, really rushed. Mm. <laughs> it's our old, old enemy time again. I do get the sense from the people actually working on the show, they all wanted this to work. They were mm. passionate about it. I think it was just yeah. the high-ups who had mm. very different plans for it. I think the way it's written, I think it, I can understand why, because you've got a series called Star Cops, and it, in a way you want to establish all that weightlessness and that working in space in your first episode it's, it's almost like a sort of statement of intent to some extent i think if we'd gone straight to the moon it would have become a bit more science fictiony from mm -hmm. the get-go it i think in terms of just looking at it from a writing point of view i think it is nicely structured that the he's in space for a couple of episodes and then we sort of become more established on on the moon but uh, but yeah, that means that that first episode has has got a lot of work to do, and unfortunately, to me, I I watching it again recently, I don't think the weightlessness is that. In my mind, it was a lot worse. Actually, I seem to remember. I mean, yes, it's obvious how the trick is being done. That Kirby wire look is is there, but in terms of it's actually, I think it's fairly well done. I know. Um... 
Eric and uh, and David, they, they they did sort of conspire amongst themselves on how to you know time get the most they could out of the sort of the, the fake weightlessness because you you've got those scenes and they're quite good actually. I mean, you can again you can see that it's it's clearly being faked, but you've got David Calder. Uh, just making a hash up of his movements and just looking really uncomfortable and, 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 and you know, always lurching at an angle and just Eric just looking just really natural with it all and just normal. But, but that, you know, that, mm. and that does convey a sense of realism because that's what people actually go through when they first go to space, you know. Mm. People have been there for a day. They just can't orient themselves properly. They keep banging into things. and and But after couple of months up there you know they can get around with the push of a fingertip you know they, they just come very graceful so yeah quite like that they, they did that mm. and of course it, it got them off the harnesses which meant they could get more more recorded I, th- mm. I think you make a very good point gareth that you're that by putting the sort of weightless bits in the first episode you're establishing it as real science fiction as opposed to far future science fiction and had mm. they gone straight to the moon then we're already looking at something that looks a bit like artificial gravity and isn't isn't necessarily um, uh, mm-hmm. that that realistic. Whereas the way what how you describe it is that you know it's set the scene. We're still still in space. We haven't advanced technologically that far. We're getting into space more easily, but trying mm. to come with no gravity is still a big issue. And, and regarding the lighting, I, I can see both sides of it. I mean, I can understand why Graham Harper makes it, wants it to look quite dramatic. And it's, yeah, it looks quite dramatic and film noirish. We get a lot more shadows, a lot more just, in a way, realistic illumination that's just mm. coming off the monitors and torches. But on yeah. another level, more realistically, and in that quest for realism, they're going to have the lights on. And it's going to be a fairly brightly lit. Uh, if you look inside the International Space Station or any other, you know, the, the, it doesn't look moody and it's yeah. all very oh. brightly lit. There was yeah. a, I don't I don't know if either of you any of you saw a series on Netflix called Night Flyers that was on. Yeah, I started uh, watching that, yes. And uh, the, it was really beginning to uh, annoy me that it's, it's all set on this futuristic space spaceship. How dimly lit that spaceship is. Everyone just forget the light switches in the <laughs> spaceship. Every, everything is so sort of like gloomy and it's like a big mm. gothic castle, which could be, have been what they were looking for, but it, it became distracting. Yeah. Also, it's difficult to see sometimes. Um, mm. You know, if you're missing out on some of the detail, again, that might be part of the reason they can get away with a lot more with the set design. But mm-hmm. um, it, when it's gloomy and you're struggling to see the action, that, again, is a bit irritating. In terms of the design, probably my criticisms aren't so much for the the the, uh, the space stations and the moon base, which I think there's, you know there's a, oh, there's good practical reasons why they have a, a bit of a prefabricated look to them because yeah. I think real ones would. Um, I think where the show perhaps lets itself down a bit more is the scene set on Earth. Yeah, where apparently, according to BBC designers, we have lost all sense of taste. <laughs> yes, altogether. Uh, you know, that that opening police station set that we're, that we're in, and uh, everything just looks hideously chunky and, uh, and you know, really, it's 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 not eighties; it's bad eighties. Yeah, and that. I guess they're try, you know, they're taking eighties designs around them and just trying to extrapolate how it would, de- you know, evolve and it evolves into something truly horrible. It seems. Mm. <laughs> On the model effect, I think the model effects stand up uh, pretty well. I mean, as soon as uh, Space Nineteen Ninety Nine, I think is is the obvious comparison between them. Yeah, and actually, the model work looks pretty good and the designs of the ships again you can see they've been doing their research into what's probably what nasa were thinking of but everything having that slightly prefabric everything seems to be built out of these sort of octagonal tetra pack sort of modules yes. and scaffolding 
Yeah, it's the one thing that is evident, even from the first episode, is, is whereas the rest of the production may have been having struggles, the, the actual model filming work, that hits the ground running. Well, you've got, uh, it's Mike Kelt, isn't he, who's heading the uh, special effects, if I remember right. And he's, mm-hmm. you know, he's a Doctor Who and Black 7 veteran, and he's mm-hmm. gone to film, he's gone on to found a, a major effects house, hasn't he, Artem, who do feature mm-hmm. films. Oh, interesting. So, you know, there's clearly a lot of talent there. And you've got Robin Lobb, who did all the, like, the visual effects on the tripods and ah. the best visual effects artist they've got at the Beeb at the time. And, yeah, they know what they're doing. So there's there's a lot of talent called there, actually. Malcolm James as well. I think it was there were three of them, weren't they? They did four, four working on yes. four episodes each or something. Yeah, I, I think that was when the models and things were one of the best things in terms of the visual effects. Um Again, mm. this was um, down to the research they'd done and and looking at making things realistic, you know, no surprises mm. and things like that. I, I, I'd agree that everything looks like it can work. I mean, Space, Space Station Mir, I think, has just gone up about that time. So, mm-hmm. you know, that would have been a, a lesson in, you know, sort of the modular future of uh, you know of spacecraft and space exploration so they but, but they know where things are going to go and if you look at the charles de gaulle station in this in, in it, it it does actually bear a striking resemblance to the international space station which of course won't mm-hmm. exist for another decade at that point they were, they were pretty accurate i mean also you've got like you know the space shuttles in the show the that's ferrying them back to, mm-hmm. to earth and back and they do look very much like the old um, Hotel design, which uh, BAE were working on at the time. Now, the Hotel never happened, as, as usual, with British technology got cancelled by the government. That quest for a single stage to orbit craft, um, uh, if there were going to be space planes, basically, that is essentially what they would look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Peter, on the, what is it, the Cult of Star Cops, uh, they mentioned that Peter Conrad had visited the set and was very impressed, saying it was very realistic and reminiscent of his experiences. And in regards to the shuttle transport scenes, he actually gave them advice on how to make it more realistic, saying, you know, you need to have the hair standing on and floating, and you need to have the, if they're falling asleep, the hands need to be floating too. So they yeah. incorporated his advice there. And, and that was good practical, you know. That was realistic advice as well, which I quite like because mm. he didn't like he didn't you know, he didn't tell them to do something that was really that would be really expensive or you no, know, just those sort of kind of little touches. Mm. Yeah, it's the small things sometimes, and yeah, just having someone's hair all over the place is is a nice touch because yeah, that's one thing you do not tend to see on sci-fi. Mm-hmm. So it's created this pretty believable uh, world and i think it's also quite to me quite impressive the number of crimes they managed to uh, come up with in uh, what what initially might seem like quite a sort of restrictive sort of uh, scenario well i enjoy them but i'm i'm a fan of murder mysteries and cop shows so i get really into it and quite funny because i didn't realize till today but my favorite episodes are all the ones not written by chris boucher weirdly enough <laughs> but i really like the ones like the ones with the uh, stolen embryos and the twins and i like the one with uh oh yeah the all uh, the the health and safety guide doing investigations played mm-hmm. by jeffrey Baldwin and everything going wrong and how about yourself peter i mean you're a very, a very experienced writer yourself. How do you think it, well it works as a as a detective show? I, I think it works very well because I was sort of reminded about uh, Robert Heinlein's book, uh, "The Earth is uh, Sorry, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress," mm. uh, where people have to be quite pleasant to each other because you depend on other people to stay alive, and if you annoy people too much, you'll find yourself sort of having your equipment fail or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. So, so that crimes aren't necessarily the sort of ones you'll get on Earth, but but a lot of them were like corporate ones or influenced by factors on Earth uh, going to the moon where they were doing research and things like this to um, to mm. actually uh, uh, change events or research or something like that. Uh, so I was quite I quite liked it wasn't so much a personal individual crimes they were solving. Obviously, they were had to be perpetrators acting on someone's behalf, but a lot of it was sort of this corporate thing that was going on, um, which I can imagine 
if you're setting up research facilities on the moon or renting out space, that that's when you could start getting illegalities taking place. Because you can certainly understand that to, to people on Earth, they having something at the moon is or a space station is feels very kind of lawless and outside of sort of uh, the law. You can see the attraction to executives, and there's a good many corrupt executives in this series. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so corporate crime is probably one of the main drivers. And the other one, it's it just kind of human weaknesses. It's greed for money. Yeah. It's yeah. dr- dr- drug addiction is a yeah. feature. Sorry, there's just, while we're on this topic, there was one point I wanted to raise, which particularly relates to the first episode where Nathan's very old-fashioned and everyone considers him old-fashioned because right from the first episode, everyone's just saying, well, the computer said this, they said, oh, it's just an accident. And Nathan's like, you've got to go with your gut instincts, you've got to investigate, this is probably a murder. And everyone's saying, well, the computer says. And he's like, screw the computer. And it, this is very pertinent to now because uh, this came up in both... Uh, BBC's Click and Have I Got News For You with different companies. So we had the post office scandal in relation mm. to the Verizon computer system where 736 sub-postmasters were wrongfully prosecuted because of a computer error. But, and again, it was a case of, well, computer says you did it, so we're going to arrest you. And yeah. in regards to what Click was talking about, lots of uh, taxi drivers, uh, private hire drivers, were basically fired by uber because of face recognition software said oh that's not you in the car so we've just mm. terminated your contract automatically and they don't speak no one interaction there and we see it all the time with youtube flagging up videos as inappropriate for example uh club penguin videos i'm not sure what that is it's a kids thing but because people were abbreviating it to cp youtube's algorithm was saying that's child porn so we're going to block the videos and it's just showing there's no human involved and it that was very very much a theme in star cops with nathan saying you can't just go by a blindly accept what a computer says yeah and it's Mm. predicting exactly what's happening people are blindly accepting what computers are saying wasn't going to talk about it yet but we do seem to be straying into this area already but we need to talk about box it's a yeah, Box is a remarkable thing, uh, certainly for predicting the future. Mm. Um, and it goes right into all this stuff we were talking about with AI. Yeah, Alexa and Siri. But also the weird part of Box, which is, why does only Nathan have one? <laughs> oh, wasn't it because of the... Well, well, we know why in the script, uh, we know why in the stories he's the only one. But of course, we all have personal assistants basically around us all the time. Any phone can do a lot mm. of the does, but... For some reason in the Star Cops universe, they thought having that kind of power at your fingertips would be something that very few people would end up having. Mm. Yes, it's interesting. They never quite explain why. I can only assume there is some unique bit of its design for some reason, or possibly even Nathan has suppressed, because Box was such a useful device that uh, it seems that amazing that it's not being used uh, everywhere else. I can only assume there's something really expensive in its design that sort of limits it. Box's design, I think, was it, it comes across as something that might have been a prototype that never got to production but um, compared to everything else in the series it seems decades ahead of its time um, and what struck me as odd in the series is that Nobody's tried to steal it. I mean, Nathan loses it at one point, I think, in the American space station. And if somebody knew that the, this thing was really that clever an AI, you'd think they would want to steal it and take it apart and see how it works. So mm. I, I always think it's very vulnerable the way he carries it, carries it uh, around. <laughs> I have what I suppose is a fan theory at this point, uh, in that people... Are surprised by box, but they're not shocked by it. They don't seem to be like, "Oh my god, what is this amazing space age device?" They just like, "Oh, you have got something like that? That's that's neat." And I'm I'm wondering if if what we've already been talking about here about AI could actually be a reason. I mean, we, given how we've got all these problems with mass privacy uh, invasions and data theft and stuff, that AI is already involved in our society. Maybe there's a moratorium. The UN say. You know, mm. corporations are no longer able 
to, to market consumer products based on AI, AI technologies and maybe boxes a result of that path not taken because they were told mm. you can't produce this anymore. So there yeah. were very few devices like it around. That's certainly a very plausible reason and that's something I could e easily see being used within the series. I, I suspect nobody ever thought of it because the question hadn't been <laughs> asked. But, uh, but yes, it would certainly be a very good um, uh, plot uh, line mm. for, for a box and why there aren't more of them. In fact, you could almost argue he's probably a little bit illegal and has to pretend to be stupider than he actually is when he's with <laughs> other people <laughs> yeah I, I do like i like that theory a lot actually kevin and, yeah, I uh, mm. Mm, and i think it's it's also just worth mentioning there's a, a fair amount of orac in it's uh in the yes. idea of what box is that he kind of draws from all these other computers and although he's got a different sort of personality he's more Whereas Orak is sort of blatantly rude and cross all the time, uh, Box is, uh, he's got a more drier, he's more like Jeeves. Well, the scripts are often excellent. Perhaps a little place where they fall down, and I was going to, what you think about this is the, uh, the international aspect of the Star Cops world. I or, guess the stereotypes, particularly the Americans, it's a bit, I'm going to be honest, I found a bit of the acting on the American episode a bit cringy on the nose. Mm. I think there are um, quite a few stereotypes in this series. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, I well, think the, the worst one was the one with the Italians. Um, yes. Not to not to be opened for. Uh, this case, not to be opened. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I thought that was like cliche city. <laughs> mm. yeah. Uh, the, yeah, there's uh, particularly the bit where Nathan is is. Um, pursued by a mafia hitman yeah who he couldn't look more like a half i mean if you were going to a fancy dress party as a mafia <laughs> hitman you'd dress like that man yeah <laughs> it, it is kind of unintentionally funny and yes yeah. the italians are on the whole they're all a bit corrupt and sleazy yeah yeah <laughs> it is an old complaint of the show and the germans are cold and logical, Americans are arrogant and paranoid, the Italians are competent, corrupt, mm. Arabs are brutal and xenophobic, Japanese mm. women are all submissive and weak, and the, the men are sneaky and scheming, so it, 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 we are, it does drift into some uncomfortable territory, I mean, I mean yeah, it's an 80s show, but they do mm. seem to fall back on some lazy stereotypes. They do. It is interesting, that the character of uh, Anna Shu was introduced by the producer, into mm -hmm. the mix uh rather she wasn't part of chris boucher's original design and interestingly he said that one of the reasons he didn't like the character yeah i don't think it's the actress or the or her performance but he didn't like the character was that because he didn't know anything about japanese culture and mm -hmm. he didn't think he'd be able to do it justice that and i think unfortunately that does show as you mm -hmm. say kevin it's a very Western view of what Japanese uh, people are like. Yes, it was very feudal, even. I would mm. say Japanese feudal. The, the whole company set up and the submissiveness. Well, we're going to say that um, more recently we've changed our minds on the Japanese uh, representation because we felt like they're almost like her, Shun and her boss. They felt like the characters had come out of a Yakuza game because we've been playing <laughs> a lot this last year, and we're like, "This is how they are in in that world." And there is a that there is a thing in Japan of you join a company, it becomes your family, and it's a job for life kind of thing. So it was kind of realistic in that respect. And I suppose mm. for the time, especially, mm. you, could, you could argue that. I don't know. Is it still like that? I don't know. Yeah, it still yeah. is a thing over there where they all. The graduates on mass dressing a particular uniform for recruitments, and there's a big mass mm. recruitment thing going on, and then they join that company, and it does become where they work for. It's, who they, it's who they socialise with. They even have like company anthems that they have to sing each morning and stuff like that. So. Yeah, and they still so. all socialise after work mm. together as a drinks thing because they have a, you behave <laughs> after work, then you do during work. Mm. And mm. To, to be fair to Anna Shun, though, she. She does kind of thwart a stereotype in the end because you know it, it, mm -hmm. she is actually picked plot in the plot because she is 
a bit of a naive wallflower. Obviously, you know, a boss is using her because she's not going to ask questions mm. or come up with anything that will, you know, hurt company interests. But over time, though, she does show herself to be a much stronger and wiser character. And I quite like her develop the development of her friendship with Colin Davis, who yeah. initially is fairly racist and dismiss yeah, and sexist. Dismissive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They end up being mates, you know. They they, yeah. they end up laughing and joking together on stuff. Mm. So I do like that there is that there is a, there is a change there. Mm. There is this sort of ele- element of um, a family of its own being created within Star Cops that you get these very disparate people from uh, very different backgrounds, and slowly they you can see in season two they're going to be gelling together as a as mm. a kind of family group because unlike a lot of spa- uh, police forces in on Earth. They're actually in space, and they they have the same isolation, surrounded by this you know huge vacuum and around, and that's that's going to bring them closer together and depend on each other a bit more. Uh, mm. One one mistake can kill you, so you're gonna you're gonna want to know there's people covering your back. Mm. <laughs> well, as uh, Colin Davis describes the Star Cops, wave some bloody strays. Feel <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah, like by episode seven, a double life. It feels like everything's come together because we've got Shoe and we've got Krivenko's joining the cast, and it just feels like everything, all the pieces are in place by that point. It's so frustrating that we get three episodes where all the gangs together finally, and mm. it's just cancelled. It's like shot in the foot. Then and it's very frustrating at that point. Because it just hangs yeah. together so well, those last three episodes. And... Yeah, there's a big learning curve, I suppose, partly for the series, but also for the star cops themselves. Mm. They, they're having to learn how to be police in space. And, and some of them don't come from a police background, particularly. They come from engineering and um, medicine and so on. But, but they're learning from each other and... Uh, learning how to be policemen in space they're sort of writing the book as they go along in fact that's uh seems a very we, we seem to have moved quite naturally into talking about the characters started with well with with nathan spring as played by david calder i'm i'm aware chris boucher wrote the character originally to be a, a sort of young maverick always at loggerheads with his boss kind of thing and um I'm really glad the production ignored him, to be honest, because um, mm. David Calder is is a hell of a steady hand. He's I, I I've always found him one of the most underappreciated actors. To mm. He is kind of that sort of rock solid foundation of it, of it all, and he's he hits the right, I think, level between kind of being a kind of a tough cop, but also being this sort of patriarch center yeah. of it there's a there's a line in an instinct for murder early on where someone describes nathan spring as he looks like the kind of guy who punch you punch your teeth out and then criticize you for mumbling and i i remember not liking that line i thought oh that's a line that chris boucher has written and he can't bring himself to delete it, even though it doesn't actually kind of fit the character anymore. But it's such a funny line, he can't get rid of it. Mm-hmm. But actually, watching it this last time, after it's not actually said by someone who really knows Nathan. It's said by the uh, the traffic controller, and that's his impression. In fact, he almost kind of says it as a joke. So it now makes more sense to me, that line. Mm-hmm. Because, as I said, a, a fairly... Not cuddly, perhaps is the wrong word, but he is a very likable. He's not easily intimidated. Um, he expects a lot of his people, but he'll support them 100%. He's like, like the ideal boss in, in many ways. Um, mm. and, and he's played superbly. I think even Chris Boucher sort of praised. He, he said he had no problems with uh, David Calder in the end playing that part because he did it so well. It's interesting as well that they chose to recruit actors and who've had a background in crime TV rather than sci-fi. And this happened again with Big Finish getting the main writer from, a again, it was an ex-police officer. So that's, I think that works out well for the show. Mm, definitely. Obviously, introduced in the first episode, we have David Farouk, as played by Eric Ray, Ray Evans. And I think he makes a good a good impression. Whenever I read reviews of the show, Eric Ray Evans, he's always regarded as the weak link of the regular cast. Um, 
But I must admit, I mean, I find, I find, I still find him quite watchable. Actually, I don't, I don't really have a problem with him. His his range isn't stellar, as you said, but uh, you know, he, he's not wrong in the role. He works. Um, Nick Harrington is mm. interesting, though a little sidelined later on. I feel I think it's because we get a lot of him in the first few episodes because he's like mm. real Starcop. We meet at first, but mm. once does the ensemble, he 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 does get shuffled into the background a little. Well, when he when we first meet him, he's coming from I guess he's coming from a position of being an established Starcop and everyone taking the piss out of them, the calling them Starcops and. Mm. I guess just used to at that point not being taken very seriously. As long as he shakes things up and is like, no, we're going to do this properly and we're not going to let these people mess us around. Well, they, they tease an interesting backstory for him, don't they? I mean, that his he was formerly an American astronaut, but resigned after some sort of scandal, political, we assume, and was immediately rehired by the Europeans. And mm. He just has this sort of aura of being this sort of principled and incorruptible guy in probably perfect Starcop material. Uh, yeah. Mm. But we never get to the bottom of all that. No, and sadly, no. It's, um, in the last episode, he, he uh, Eric Ray Evans got shingles, so he couldn't oh, be he in the last wasn't episode. Wasn't he? Was he in? No, so I think Kenzie took over his role with that, having the uh, radical background, but it is mentioned before that. David Theroux does have the radical background, so I think he would have been the character who knew that journalist. Ah, that would have made a lot more sense, actually. Mm. Uh, because uh, I always thought it was a bit odd that uh, this character of uh, Powell Kenzie was a political radical. And... Yeah, because he doesn't fit him at all, does no, he? No, no. Chris Boucher, who rewrote it, it was a, uh, it was David Calder and Trevor Cooper who wrote that because there was the strikes going on and Boucher wasn't around and they were just like, someone's got to rewrite this. Mm. They were working on the hoof with that. Yeah. Mind if I remember right, um, Rupert Murdoch, everyone's um, least favourite corporate user. There's <laughs> <laughs> a lot to choose from now. <laughs> was um. Uh, he in his youth was a was a member of a socialist organisation at university, so you know people do cross the floor, especially in Australia, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. And we were talking about stereotypes. To some extent, uh, Paul Kenzie is uh, another stereotype. She's a a bolshy Australian, and uh, we'd already had. Uh, if you're a science fiction fan, you you might will be aware of another bolshy Australian woman <laughs> who's been in in Doctor Who not mm. so long ago. Because uh, they're all bolshy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, again, I suppose that you have to class that as a stereotype. Mm. But she does play well against um, Nathan Spring, doesn't she? I mean, mm. uh, the two of them. I mean, they're like poles apart, but. You get this sort of synergy between them in the end that uh, they work well as a team. I could see them actually, you know, if they were people were to pair up mm. on the force like they have partners. I think those two could really work well together. That conflict between them would generate a lot of ideas and possibilities. Mm, I think I agree with you. I think although I'm glad we got this family, you know, if you were going to do something with just two of them. That's the obvious uh, partnership mm. between them. And, and I think Linda Newton does a good job. And she's actually very good at, 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 at doing that kind of panicking as well and being uh, fearful, going back to uh, this case not to be opened for a million years, uh, the bits where they're exploring the spaceship and finding mm. these desiccated bodies all yeah. around. Is, yeah. uh, I think a lot of the effectiveness of that is the way that she plays it. Yeah. Well, she and and Spring both have that that thing that they have this aura. They give off this co confidence, this 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 thing of being in control. But both of them are actually a hell of a lot more vulnerable than you know they they prefer to let on. And, mm. You know, Nathan has to go through all his you know dealing with space, or rather, not dealing with being in space. I'm seeing uh, his partner. Yeah. She was murdered, and yeah. You know, he's recovering from that. And... So, you know, he, he he shows a lot of vulnerability. But then, yeah, she, it shows that she's not what her her image is either. I thought the show was kind of setting them up to be some kind of 
couple eventually. Yeah, I, I thought I, they... I was getting the will they won't they kind of thing. Yeah. Mm, I, I, yes, I agree with that. Although Badger denies that was ever going to happen. Oh, <laughs> I think he just wanted them to um, kind of spark off each other. Mm. Uh, um, which I think uh, if they would kind of ro- romantically engage, I think they'd have to stop working to which would be a shame. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It would it it would cause sort of cause too many problems. When we meet Kenzie, she is someone who's got lost in the murk, and you know she's, mm. she, you know, uh, she tries to um, she tries to uh, she, she tries to extort money from uh, undercover Colin Davis, so and uh, <laughs> yes. red-handed is dirty. And I suppose over the series, you you know, Nathan manages originally just wanting to be rid of her, but by the end of the show, actually manages not, you know to bring out. A, not only a good cop, but an honest one, and I think yeah. that's that, that is a great character progression for her. I guess her corruption at the beginning was still over from that period when <clears throat> the star cops were all volunteers and not taken seriously at all. Well, I suspect she signed up for the um, well, just for the places it might be to be able to get her and the people it might get her to be able to talk mm. to rather than having any interest in upholding the law. The producer had suggested different titles for Star Cops. He wanted to call it something like High Frontiers or something. That is a Wild West almost still. Yeah. You've got Nathan trying to impose law in space. Yeah. What 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 do people think of that title? I don't like, like it. I mean which, I, I which title it, the actual title? High Frontiers. Yeah, no, not it's what? not a Western. Um, no, it's not it's a cop show. It's not like the Wild West. People are very well behaved. Um, people need to depend on each other to survive. Mm. Um, there, there aren't gunfights. No. No, I just wouldn't have been, just wouldn't have um, worked. I don't think it's just not right. <laughs> mm. uh, it might no, have been that before years before in space, but not at the current state they're at in no. where we're seeing it. The one character we've not talked about must be addressed so is is colin davis ah uh, uh, yes by trevor cooper yes he's a bit of a dinosaur even by today's well even by the standards of the series i think uh, but certainly by today's standards but he does fit into um spring's idea of not having computer slaves mm. and, and and his most important role of course is to make us laugh he's the <laughs> comedy elements he's kind of like um a loyal dog, isn't he? Um, yes. he, he probably he probably die defending Nathan, um, mm. but at the same time, Nathan's got to shout at him all the time to to heal, um, <laughs> and you can't let him near any bitches. That's for sure. So, so yeah, I I think he he adds colour to the to the series. I think actually he's one of my favourite characters, if not the favourite character, possibly after. Nathan Spring, um, but yeah, that's mm. my opinion on him. <laughs> yeah, Trevor Cooper is he's such an enormously likable actor. Anyway, mm. I think maybe there's a fair bit of Trevor in there, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, he never fails to be entertaining on screen. I know interview Trevor Cooper saying Davis isn't a diplomat and it's best to keep him on moon base where his strengths lie and not send him off undercover or anything like that because as soon as they do he gets caught like in Japan. Yes. Which I think <laughs> yeah. 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 he's not very subtle, is he, when he tries to sneak <laughs> his way in. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's he's not. I mean, it's interesting that when he's introducing conversations with the dead, yeah, uh, he's a much. He's actually quite a nasty character at first when I mean, he's investigating the murder of Spring's fiance. He very quickly sort of softens into that much more likable character in the remaining episodes. I think it sort of reflects his insecurity as a police officer. Um, that he, he knows he's not very bright and he knows he's been put in charge of that case to basically uh, make a mess of it. Um, and he's sort of snarling and barking at people because he doesn't know what else to do about it. I think he's putting up a pretense of being a competent officer, but he knows he's skating on thin ice. Mm. It's addressed in the Big Finish audience because in the second episode he puts his foot in it with being sexist and racist and stuff and Dupree and he basically apologises and says that you know when I'm in a situation where I'm, things aren't as I expect I just 
bullets to fire one. I'm sorry, I don't mean it. Mm. Uh, it's a defense mechanism. It is, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, that's what it is, and he's sorry about it. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a nice revelation when we discover he's been married five times. <laughs> and, uh, I'm amazed that he could find five women to marry him, but... Uh... <laughs> well, he is. He's very cuddly. Yeah, I suppose so. Not my taste, but... Yeah. <laughs> There's Kravenko. We, we haven't really talked about him. No, we haven't yeah. really, and that, that, that's a... Sh- yes, I do apologise. And, in fact, I didn't include him in my summary at the start. But I, I feel that is unfair to Jonathan Adams, who does... Uh, uh, to me, a, a decent job on Kravenko. Yeah. yeah. He's very convincing as a Russian. Very hairy Russian. Yeah. Yes. But that's, I suppose, another stereotype, of, stereotype on, yeah. Yeah, of scientific uh, genius Russians. There's quite a bit of um, topple going on in there. There's two ways you could go with that part. You either have someone who's really antagonistic mm. towards uh, the Star Cops and always kind of going, getting in the way, or you have the way he's gone with it, which is that much more a supportive patriarch, but who sometimes gets caught up between Earth and what the Star Cops want to do. Yeah, he can put pressure on them, but he does it in a very subtle way. And it's almost like Nathan is sort of feeling under pressure because he feels he has to support him, because he obviously appreciates that he nothing could have a lot worse than, um, than, than him as mm. the person in charge. Yeah, I suppose in many ways both of them have in common that they're in very precarious roles. One of the controversial things about Star Cops has been its opening titles, or more specifically, the music mm. of the opening titles. I was wondering what uh, people think about uh, the song It Won't Be Easy by Justin Hayward. Well, I, I like the song. Mm-hmm. I must admit, it, it, it is actually a song I'm, I'm, I'm rather fond of uh, mm. after all these years. And, you know, I'm not a Moody Blues fan or anything. But, no, but, no. But, no, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's all right. It, it's, in the end, it works. Um, and it goes with the imagery as well. I like the imagery, like the, uh, was it, the spacesuit footprint thing and the, the moon mm. stuff. Like no, if I was going to pick a fight with the music, it would be more the some of the incidental mm. choices which are at times a bit bizarre mm-hmm. somewhat ill-fitting but no I, I have no problem with the theme i know i know some people just like it, it moves them to be nauseous but no, it's not <laughs> an issue i have um my feeling about the song is i i love the song i've actually got it um on my playlist uh, with alexa uh, i really do like the song uh, i'm not entirely convinced it's a good theme song for Star Cops. I mean, the song itself tells a story. I mean, it's, it's that the song tells a story. So, so you end up cutting off the story at some point as it plays the theme. So mm. I think something without words would have been better, something that was maybe catchy, uh, associated, made you think of Star Cops. But um, I'm not convinced that it was the best thing to do as a theme tune. I know John Iles wouldn't forgive me if I didn't mention that um, when we first saw Enterprise, uh, Star Trek Enterprise, me and him were like, hey, they're ripping off the Star Cops intro. There <laughs> <laughs> was a certain stylistic uh, you know, similarity between them. I like the Enterprise opening. <laughs> <laughs> so deliberately chose that song because he wanted to try and draw in non-sci-fi fans. Mm. He thought easy listening tune would draw people in. Yeah, it certainly it does belong more to the detective genre of uh, than than science fiction. So uh, I don't think it would come as a surprise that all have liked uh, a second season. Yeah, That's on the panel. Right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> of that. And uh, what what how 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 do you think it would have gone in a second in a second series? I well, they were setting up for um, moving to Mars, setting up a police mm. station on Mars and um, presumably the Martian colonies or bases are starting to develop there um, so we would have had stories in a similar vein on Mars um, and possibly then this sort of back and forth between the moon Earth, Mars so the, mm. and various space stations I did wonder if that's one thing that frightened the BBC because 
you're, you're creating a whole new element then. Uh, mm. You're going to need new actors, new special effects, some new sets. That mm. might well have, um, you know, they saw that coming and they probably thought, oh, this is going to cost a lot of money. Mm. Uh, do we really want to do that? I'm very sad about one of the episodes that didn't get made, which was Death on the Moon, because that was going to be like an Agatha Christie-style murder mystery on the moon where we set a number of suspects. And and I think you'd have, we'd have got more, sto- you know, again, more stories like that in the second season. Mm. Well, I think what, I, I, I'm getting a sense of it, if, if they were going to commit to the Mars idea, yeah, you it might actually have helped production in some ways because you would have then had a certain set of characters on the moon or on earth as, as needed. And then you've got some characters who are very much stuck on Mars and then you can have episodes shifting focus, which mm-hmm. would then help because you didn't need the same people in, in every week, could have more um, more strands of production going on at the same time. But yeah. uh, but yes, I could certainly see an exec looking at that and thinking, this is just, <laughs> we can lose a lot of money on that. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking that at the time the BBC press screening for Star Cops emphasise oh it's not sci-fi, it's a realistic cop show exactly and I thought that kind of shoots itself in the foot when something says it's not uh, uh, science fiction when it's to any kind of lay person I think looking at it they would say that's science fiction it's obviously science fiction, isn't it? And it's like they're apologising for science fiction, which mm. sort of reflects more about what the people are, about the people who are saying it than it does about the programme. As you can tell, we're all fans here, and I'd like yeah. to uh, wrap up this um, podcast with us all nominating our favourite episode out of these nine episodes. So would you like to begin, Peter? It was difficult. It was between Conversations with the Dead... I really mm-hmm. didn't see that ending coming. Uh, had me fooled about, you know, the whole business with mur- murdering, um, was it Lee Jones? Um, mm. And and the sort of machinations of the um, British Intelligence Service trying to get onto the American Space Station and Little Green Men and other Martians. And I, I remember... Uh, when I saw that, I got really excited by that because the, the <laughs> title, first of all, and then then that scene where the the spaceman or the astronaut on the Martian surface finds something is what we've been looking for. And, oh, great! There's going to be aliens in this one, but there aren't, of course. And so I was set up very nicely, and then and then of course it it uh, came back to being a normal con. Um, mm-hmm. I think I think I'm going to go with. Um, Conversations with the Dead because it was a it was almost like a, a James Bond type thriller in that uh, they they were willing to kill people as a ploy to get into uh, get some information and steal data. Mm, that's how, how about yourself, Rebecca? What were you? Doing? I think my favourite is a, a Double Life, which is the one about the kid, uh, stolen embryos and. You know the the what it turned out to be. I've said twins earlier. I actually meant clones. So we had two people know about the second person because so everyone's accusing this uh, pianist of stealing the embryos when he plainly couldn't because he was doing a mm. concert and turns out he'd been cloned. And I really like the one uh, other people's secrets, which is the one where you've got um, Jeffrey Bailden coming on as. Uh, coming on board the station, doing some kind of safety inspection and everything's going wrong, all kinds of glitches and explosions and things, just terrible things happening and he's thinking what's, he's getting angry saying this place is a mess and it turns out mm. it's him all along. Mm. Yeah. And, and how about yourself, Kevin? Um, I mean, I could either just duplicate what other people said, but I, I thought I'll, I'll pick Trivial Games and Paranoid Pursuits due to the just the ambition of the story. And mm-hmm. the um, and I I really love space station Ronald Reagan. I think it's yeah. just it's just a really impressive uh, um, and very believable uh, first step for an artificial gravity space station. That again, they just put a lot of design work into uh, in, 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 into bringing into reality and um, and you know and and the actual mysteries 
quite good as well. So. Graham Harper did some really good camera work. Yeah, there is like, Where it followed Nathan and uh, the American guy, and they were walking along, and the camera just kept following them as they were climbing up the ladder to the next level, and it was yeah, all one shot. Entered the camera so they can mm. yeah, just keep on moving with them. Really good that. We're almost on, on similar lines, Peter, because I was going to nominate uh, those those two episodes, you, you, the um, conversations with the dead for its ingenuity and uh, Little Green Men, because I think it's a very, again, it's a really good plot of an idea. It's got epic. Mm. But for the variety, underneath them, I would actually go for An Instinct for Murder, mm. because I think it's a very good pilot episode uh, mm. that sets it up very well i think the the two crimes the ingenuity of the of the two crimes being investigated the first got... minutes of that of that episode are just you know really impressive actually i find it's the intercutting between space and the guy swinging the leg yeah mm. i did like that myself well I've I've enjoyed this a lot, and I I hope I hope you you all have as well. Well, I certainly have. Yes, <laughs> it's been fascinating talking to you, and it's been great actually to talk um, with you, Peter. Because although we've corresponded mm-hmm. over the years, uh, this is the first time we we've got to actually talk with each other. Yes, I think it is. So that, that's that's been quite nice. And then I must say, whilst I was in preparing this, I was looking up on your. Peter Gray, Peter Gray has an excellent website uh, about his work. I was really interested to see that you'd written for Commando. Uh, yes, that's right. I needed something to make money. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, I've written a series of Commando books. I haven't done it for a while, but uh, I recently I started coming up with some more ideas and I've uh, been in touch with them recently, so I they've given me the okay to send some ideas to them. But uh, it's spinning all these plates. That's uh, the problem. Oh, are, are you working on anything else at at, at the moment? Yeah, I'm I'm writing a, uh, the next in the series for my House of Ashes series of books. Um, the first one was uh, Dead Man Dancing, House of Ashes, Dead Man Dancing. This is this is a performing arts center in space, and hence the ashes. There's two under cover ashes there one is uh, actually a usher and the other one is an ice cream droid who's actually a, a much more advanced droid than your typical ice cream droid but he's very bad tempered about being stuck into this job where you have to give ice cream to people all the time but the second <laughs> story is called yellow mists and cobalt sands and this is where they go down to the planet's surface that the um the performing arts center is orbiting around and they have a series of adventures there. Sounds very intriguing. Well, I must say thank you very much again for giving me your time to talk about Star Cops. It's been my pleasure. It's been fun. It's been fun. Thank you for inviting us on, Chris. So it, it just leads me to say to you, thank you for listening, and hope you'll join us all very soon. So goodbye for now. You've been listening to Very British Futures, hosted and produced by Gareth Preston, with guests Peter Grayen, Kevin Hiley, and Dr. Rebecca Ray. If you'd like to find out more about Peter Grayen's work, then visit petergrayenwriter.weebly.com. And if you'd like to watch some of Kevin Hiley's films, then check out westlakefilms.blogspot.com. You might even see me in some of them. You can follow us on Twitter at FuturesVery or visit GarethPreston.blog for more information. Join us next time for Friends.